if you look at ASU and look at some of the some of the actions and the the goals that are pursued, they are very big, right? Like you know, producing thousands more engineers, transforming what engineering is. Just announced a new medical school where they're actually going to be kind of coming up with a new version of what teaching medicine looks like. That like a almost an a medical engineering kind of approach. There are some institutions who are doing things that are bigger than what their state demands of them. And those, there are certain things that should rise to the level of national importance that are actually, if you think about the future of our country, we need universities doing certain things. We should figure out what those things are. Welcome to Innovating Together, a podcast produced by the University Innovation Alliance. This is a podcast for busy people in higher education who are looking for the best ideas, inspiration, and leaders that will help you improve student success. I'm your host, Bridget Burns. Each week, I partner with a journalist to have a conversation with a sitting college president, chancellor, system leader, or someone in the broader ecosystem who's really an inspiring leader. And the goal is to have a conversation to distill their perspective and their insights gathered from their leadership journey. Our hope is that this is inspiring and gives you something to look forward to each week. This episode, my co-host is Inside Higher Ed co-founder and CEO, Doug Lederman. Doug and I normally team up to have a conversation with a leader in the field, but today we're going to actually be reflecting on many of the past conversations we've had and what we're observing in the field and this past year, 2023, and talking now about our new year of 2024, what we're thinking is on the horizon and kind of key priorities as we as we navigate ahead. So this is much easier, I think, in terms of you and I just back and forth. Uh, but we'll see. I hope you brought your wisdom. Yeah, I don't know. We usually lean pretty heavily on the on the guest, but we'll have to we'll have to make do with just the two of us. But I think we can muster through. So let's talk about where we are right now. You know, just wrapping up, we finished up twenty twenty three. You wrapped the year with a very big announcement, and therefore probably have some interesting work ahead. And I also just had released in our newsletter that our newest numbers of 143,000 additional graduates were, were rolled out and that we're in the midst of year 10. So we thought we would kind of start talking about the twin you know, topics of big wins for the last year and big priorities as we go ahead and thinking about the last conversation we had, which was around how we're observing some key areas that higher ed really needs to pay attention to and to have potentially a different response to in terms of the public opinion and the issues that we saw that came out of a congressional hearing. So that's where I see us well, going. Yeah. So I'll, uh, I mean, I guess when I think about like looking back at and ahead, I think about both sort of organizationally at Inside Higher Ed and higher education. We just, I just, we just published right near the end of the month, our top stories of the year, which helped me kind of think about where, where the sort of challenges are and, and where where the sort of heat was in 2023, uh, and and sort of thinking I, I was it, I didn't we didn't talk about what issues we thought were going to be sort of acute and uh, in 2024, but I think the way the year ended, I think it points the way pretty closely. I mean, I think it's it's about money and sort of institutional sort of thriving and which institutions will thrive and which won't, and then it is really the I mean the year ended on such a difficult note in terms of sort of political environment and sort of acute, really acute questioning of higher education, which I guess, you know, again, has been steadily building, but just 
exploded between, you know, especially with the congressional hearing. And what struck me as, you know, right near the end of the year, we had we had uh, the House Education Committee essentially not quite calling for the resignation of the president of Harvard, but basically intruding into intruding into whether Harvard was doing a good job deciding whether its president should stay, which is strikes me as an unbelievable overstep. So anyway, I think it's going to be, and, and going into an election year, I just, it's hard for me to fathom sort of what is, how much pressure is going to be on institutions. These issues are going to come to just about every institution. And I think that's just going to be, we're going to be brutal. And it's going to be fascinating to see how institutions respond. And I'm not talking just about Israel, Palestine, Palestinian stuff. It's, it's clearly that has opened the door to just all sorts of other questioning, you know, particularly of of the, the wealthiest and most selective institutions and, you know, which I think have been are on the defensive in, for the first time in a long time, in my, more than I can ever remember. That's the external, that's the external. Internally to Inside Higher Ed, per your, uh, what you referred to, yeah, we just announced uh, that we'd hired an, an, a new editor-in-chief to start in March, uh, and she will, Sarah Custer, who's coming from Times Higher Education, which is our partner and, and uh, colleagues across the pond. She's going to be ultimately succeeding me as the editorial sort of leader of Inside Higher Ed. And so, yeah, the, the whole, the, the early part of next year and through the middle of part of the year is going to be all about sort of helping to inject into our organization a completely new leader of one of our top people. And it's going to be fascinating and challenging and exciting and I'm excited for what it's going to potentially lead to, and it's going to, you know, create all sorts of interesting questions and opportunities for me going forward. So I'm excited. About it. Well, I'm excited. I've met her before. I'm trying to remember. Does she have an accent? I feel like she doesn't. No, she's a, she's an she's an American, which was very important to me. Not that I, you know, I'm, I'm biased against Brits, but you know, somebody somebody, the person who is at, inside higher ed's editor has to understand American higher ed, and it is different. And Sarah grew up here, was educated here. She's been in this, she's been abroad for about a little over a decade now, but she, she, she gets it. She's got a lot to learn because it's been a while since she's been integrated into it. But, you know, that's what the process, part of the, what the process will be learning, learning inside higher ed and uh, deeply and intimately and also re-engaging with American higher ed. So how long has IHE been around? Two, two years. Oh, well, we, we're in our, we next at the end of next year, this time next year is, will be 20 years since our founding. So we started into late 2004, really got going in early 2005. But so we're, we next year will be the end of next year will be the start of our third decade, which is an opportune time to have a new, a new leader. So yes. So like I said, I met her, I thought she's rock solid and it was, I met her under totally different circumstances around something that I was doing with Times Higher Ed back in the day, long before merger or whatever, whatever you might call it, acquisition, yep. otherwise yep. the partnership. And yep. so that's exciting, but you're going to still be kicking it with me, I hope for a little bit longer. Uh, so. I, that's, that's, that's the plan. You know, I think you've, I will probably want to be integrating some other people like, you know, you've worked a little bit with some of our other folks, but yeah, I'm not going anywhere for a while. So talk about your, where oh. UIA is and where you're heading. A few, so a few kind of touched on. I want to circle back to the Harvard thing because I I realized that there was a point that I didn't make last session that is you know very much top of mind and and the lesson I took from it. But ironically, we're actually on coming up on our tenth year, 
And I've spent the last year, big milestones for us were hitting. A lot of people know that when we went public and first launched in 2014, President Obama announced our first big goal publicly that we were going to be measured against. And while there are you know, array of goals that we pursue, including eliminating equity gaps and innovating together and holding each other accountable with data transparency and stuff like that. The North Star was this additional 68,000 graduates that we were going to produce by 2025. And so now we just hit 143,000 on that goal. And that is not with the new campuses. We only measure the original 11 as our consistent assessment of the, the network. And then we also measure the other campuses separately. I am Ray Magliozzi, co-host of NPR's Car Talk. If you're working to solve the biggest challenges in higher education, you've come to the right podcast. And if you're looking for a student retention platform proven to get results, check out Mainstay.com. I may be biased because the CEO of Mainstay just happens to be my son. So instead of taking my word for it, you can trust the research they've done with Georgia State, Brown, and Yale as proof that Mainstay improves enrollment, retention, and well-being. Visit mainstay.com slash research to learn more. That's, you know, we're going to be doubling that goal before it lapses, which is wild, right? We also secretly added our 18th campus. I don't unveil a campus until they are, they fully have hired their new fellow and they actually have the work happening on the ground because the news that you are now part of the Alliance only just creates, uh, you know, a lot more energy and 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 people wanting to be part of it. And if you have anything for them to be part of, you don't have anyone for them to help support that, then it would be a real bummer. So so we will unveil them uh, at the right time. But we did technically have added three campuses in the last year and a half. So that growth and, you know, there have been some bigger milestones for me personally um, in terms of this work and how it's evolved and the messaging and got some great opportunities to keynote HLC and the Northwest accrediting body as well. And, and a couple bigger chances to really share our message beyond, you know, talking to people who know we are, but I spent the year trying to understand what one does at year 10. And I think that there are, there's some paths you can go down. The question I was teeing up is like, you know, do you shut it down? Because there are very few things that actually fully work. This really worked. There are a lot of nonprofits that just evolve what they do. And you just start adding more things that whatever funders will fund. And, you know, you can cloud the, the value of the work. Or do you just update the number in front of you? Do you just update the goal so that it's in, in front? Or option three is adapt to the moment, actually take a look at what's going on and see what is the right thing for this moment based on the unique zone of genius of this work. And I think we're heading down path three, but really reflecting on, given what we talked about last week about how public public sentiment to higher ed, these important trends, what's going on locally, globally, just the behavior of higher ed, all of it. And I expect that in the next year, we will announce a new goal that I hope is directly responsive to what is 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 needed, which for me, there are some other things that need to happen before that. One of them is that we need, and I'm not saying I'm going to do this, but I'm saying someone needs to do this. We need a strategic plan for the economic competitiveness of the United States, specifically around talent and opportunity in the future of AI. Equity embedded throughout, but like we need an adult in charge of talent and opportunity for the United States. We need, we need to have a plan. Other countries are going to eat our lunch if we don't, and we are going to rue the day that we didn't we didn't give ourselves the space to actually look at all of the demographic trends, look at the birth rate, look at what's what we can anticipate around AI, look at the industry shortages that we can already see. I mean, just think about just think about home health aides. 
just think about an aging population and the production of home health aids and whether or not we're actually doing what's necessary to get people in the pipeline to, to be able to meet the needs of what we can very clearly see. So I think there are some big trends that we could actually give ourselves a moment to reflect on and come up with a strategic plan for the talent opportunity in, in the future of AI. And I also think each state needs one of those that is responsive to their geography, their industries, their natural resources, their demographics. And in my mind, I think the opportunity ahead is that campuses emerge at least one operating in each state as a uh, as a quarterback partnership with the governor to actually implement the talent opportunity to making sure that everybody in that state whether you go to that institution or others that you're using the best practices the most innovative techniques and, and tools and that every student has a fighting chance to achieve their full potential so Building something that is responsive to the moment is what I'm working on. And mm -hmm. it is, for me, it's been a million conversations where it is, you know, evolving the concept in and figuring out the path ahead. And I think the, I'm really excited about the next year. I'm excited about the opportunity to reflect on 10 years of work and see if we went away, the country would be worse off for it. And mm -hmm. what should we stop doing? So in January, my board's coming together to start to set our new North Star goal, which is just replacing that 68K one. And I think it's going to be much more nuanced and, and comprehensive and bigger and, again, responsive. And uh, we're going to have a summit in October, the UIA summit, which is like unlike anything that exists in higher ed. It's like an actual event that you feel like you got work done and you came home with a game plan and you came home with allies and, and a network and the tools to implement. So I'm really excited about the year ahead. That's where I'm at. Mm -hmm. It's interesting I, on that that idea of the strategic plan. Very much agree that the that we lack one generally. And the trickiest thing, and I, I've been doing a lot of you and I've talked about this before, and I've been doing a lot of thinking about it recently because I just I think there's a much better chance of that happening at the local slash state level than nationally because of how we're structured. I mean, we don't have. I mean, it, when, when in a lot of other countries, the government would lead that uh, to to a, you know there'd be a, a coming together of the ministries of you know the three key ministries or the five key ministries or whatever with a, a very centralized government sort of pointing in a direction, and that ain't how we work. God, especially now, right? I mean, at the federal at the federal level. So, the one of the big things that I've always wrestled with about sort of the higher education ecosystem and broadening that, which is what you're really talking about, to a an education and training ecosystem that would that would basically and and it would be include colleges and universities, but not be, be limited to them because it's obviously a much bigger job and lots of entities need to be involved. But like we don't operate that way. It, the question of whether it's national versus federal versus, I don't know. So anyway, so I, that's a, I, I think getting a bunch of states to do it and have that bubble up in some ways seems almost likelier than it's coming from a, a, a federal or a, even a, or a national direction. So anyway, I, I'm fascinated in that idea. How you think about it. But. When I'm trying to figure out, you know, what is the number of graduates that we need to, you know, what would be an ambitious goal? 
realizing that we don't have the Tony Carnavale numbers in the future of AI because people are not really willing to speculate about degree needs right now, given that AI, they don't want to be wrong. I mean, people were totally wrong about boot camps, right? So I understand that, but I'm also just, it's, it's very clear that there's a lot of anxiety around AI and people, and we were given a lot of ink to it. But wouldn't it be nice if we actually had a plan? And I actually, I do think we have enough to, even if you don't know what AI is going to do, you at least have a hint of what just looking at our talent needs, the opportunity needs, where we, we need more replacement parts in certain areas. We need more people who are who are being at least encouraged on the path so that we're not going to be caught off guard in 10 years, 20 years. Like I think there's some some major demographic swings that we could just lay those out. Like one of the things for me is looking at the number of men and young boys who are pursuing education, higher education. We should like that needs to be a priority. The birth rate that we just simply aren't going to have as many 18 year olds, you know, and so that needs a national plan. That's not just institutions trying to take a swing at adult learners and offer them some old thing that we've been offering for a long time. Like what would be an intentional strategy? There's some stuff that I think is a higher priority than you would want states to, you know, we hope we get it right. And I, and I, I, I just think in general, that idea of federal and federal, state, and universities. Michael Crow talks frequently about this concept of national service universities. And I only really got it recently when I understood that there, if you look at ASU and look at some of the, some of the actions and the, the goals that are pursued, they are very big, right? Like, you know, producing thousands more engineers, transforming what engineering is, just announced a new medical school where they're actually going to be kind of coming up with a new version of what teaching medicine looks like, that like a almost an in, a medical engineering kind of approach. There are, and I'm not saying those are the things necessarily, I, you know, just using as an example, there are some institutions who are doing things that are bigger than what their state demands of them. And those there are certain things that should rise to the level of national importance that are actually, if you think about the future of our country, we need universities doing certain things. We should figure out what those things are, but we should, what I, I think is wrong is letting the whipsaw of state politics distract those institutions. There are certain things and certain behaviors in certain institutions that we need to be really, you know, punching above their weight and delivering for the country on certain key priorities. And I, I'm interested in figuring out what those things are that are, that should transcend, that states should not be able to prevent us from pursuing those things and that we actually need a national approach. And I, I don't know, I think there's some, there's, there's going to be some shift, I think in the future. I think there's opportunity, especially because AI is going to create so much change. And I, I don't think we want to make it that, you know, are you in a state that, that was lucky and made smart bets? Or are you, in, are you in a state that wasn't lucky and didn't think about this? And now everyone else is going to eat your lunch. Yeah. And I, well, and I, and I absolutely agree that the big picture realm that you're talking about, which is what does the future of our workforce look like? That's one of the areas where there actually is a fair bit of agree. Uh, there's a, there's the possibility of alignment between in our, in our very broken national political environment. Like this, this is a set of issues around which there is possibility of coming together. And so a federal slash national strategy isn't impossible at, you know, 
it would be very difficult to get a federal or national strategy these days around a lot of things, but I do think that there is an opportunity in this particular realm. But it's it's a little bit of a threading a needle, and it'll. I, I think there's a, there is a waiting for a big idea, though. I don't think there's any question about that, or a looking for a big idea to to stimulate that kind of coming together. I just generally, when I talk to parents and when I talk to kids. I think about the future and I just, it would really be great. I would feel so much better if I felt like there was a sober adult in charge when it comes to the the big picture North stars that we're pursuing when it comes to higher education collectively in the United States. We need to close our equity gaps. We need to graduate far more people. We need to shift what a degree means because it needs to be responsive to this moment. It's obviously got to have a component around this resilience piece where graduates are more resilient in the face of an opinion that is different than theirs and who are engaging in, in respectful discourse and debate. It also definitely has to translate to social mobility. I think there's some stuff that like, it's not that controversial. Like we, we, we clearly just need to make sure that we're not just tinkering in silos and hoping we get lucky. And in, in fact, we're actually like pulling in, in the same direction. I'm hopeful about it. I would love for us to have that and I hope that funders and I hope that there are other leaders who want to recognize that right now is the moment where we can rise to the challenge and we can actually carve out a few things that we all agree we need to be pursuing and then figure out how we want to readdress as, as we learn more. Because AI, it's not going to be, you know, two, two years from now, we're done. And now we know how it affected us. It's, it, I, I'm curious about what are the habits and strategies that we're going to implement so that we are revisiting, we're reflecting, we are synthesizing lessons, and we are shifting where needed. That's, I just want an adult in charge of higher ed. And I don't think universities are older than the country or older than the church, right? Like, so elections come and go, but I do feel like it would be nice to have, have some direction. So that's just me. I'm just, again, I think between the two of us, you're the journalist and I'm someone who is eternally optimistic about higher ed and like inherently believes in it, perhaps too much. Right. And so I, I believe it can change. I see it all the time. I'm hopeful. I, I also believe that there's a, there's a way to position a, gr a collective group of university leaders to provide the leadership we've all been looking for from Washington. And I look forward to trying to build that. That's what I'm, mm -hmm. I'm doing. So you're 10, you're 10 for me, you're 20 for you. <laughs> um, wild. I'm excited about the year. I did want to circle back to the, the hearings that we ended last year on. Mm. You know, we talked about the public perspective of higher ed, but for me, the piece that I walked away from is it all, you know, when I saw that happen, what I thought about was whoever prepped them, that's who I hold responsible because presidents, you know, especially that presidency is too important. It's too important to have the wrong people in the room or the wrong strategy about supporting a president. And when I was, you know, I've now worked with more than 50 college presidents. I don't aspire to be one. I aspire to help them be better. And I have always observed that when a lawyer is prepping, they will be more defensive. They will be very risk focused. And you end up with testimony like that. It is they rarely have the nuanced perspective of how to engage uh, as in, in public relations and communication and actually listening and, 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 you know, showing up in the moment. So for me, that was, that was one of the biggest takeaways was whoever was in that room prepping them, that is who I hold responsible in terms of they were clearly walking in with marching orders and, uh, and, and 
had been had been warned about the risks entirely of saying the wrong thing instead of be, hey, be a human being, listen, show some deference, <laughs> you know, like, so that was what I took away. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. I, I have since we actually talked last time, watched a, a, a good bit more of the testimony. And I do I actually think on balance, they did a pretty decent job on balance that they for four plus five almost five hours they were they actually they engaged yes i mean the the problem is that all that the whole thing was a setup for the clip that went viral pretty much i mean they, there was a a deep hope i think on the part of the people who organized it that that's you know kind of <laughs> that they could find ways to make the presence like that and they did and i totally agree with you about the over dependence on the lawyers i think the presidents they were they, they didn't adapt and be the human beings that they that and the smart human beings that they are and they and i think you know they tried and they parried and they for a long 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 time and then i you know at, at the worst possible moment they went to legal speak and it was it was devastating and you know i think it's going to be quite a while some of them i mean uh, some of them will, will not recover and higher ed will suffer for some time because of it so it's um but it's uh so yeah there's a there's a there are some definitely some lessons to be learned i just i'm i'm regretting i really do in many ways feel bad for them and think that it was you know think a trap was laid and they stepped in it. Well, I just think that people we're talking about new presidents relatively and which is a, was another purposeful tactic, I believe, yeah, in terms but, of who was invited. Like and beyond like zo zooming out cuz uh, to not get too new, too stuck in this topic yeah. it, to to the the specifics is that the don't miss the lesson here, which is mm -hmm. uh, the presidency is more volatile than ever, and we cannot afford to lose presidents the rate that we are, because every time you lose a president, from my personal opinion, you lose five years of progress. And I've seen this happen. I, you know, starting at uh, my first time being involved in the non-renewal of a flagship president, I can see the progress points and there are things I would measure about an institution. And I think that you know, this is going to, it harms students. It harm. it costs a lot of money. It, it holds the institution back. It holds all of us back. So just thinking of the presidency in general, how you support it, knowing that you have new presidents coming in, understand that uh, at no point do scholars or department chairs or deans get prepared for congressional testimony in that way. They also don't get prepared to handle athletics. They don't get, they don't know how to handle uh, a lot of things, right? It's a, it's a huge privilege to support a president and help them be successful. Uh, one of the most important things is supporting them having really good peripheral vision. And that is very difficult to maintain, actually, because they get very, my observation is that they spend most of their days interacting only with people who want something from them or who work for them. And the people who are honest with them, it, it's rare because you have to earn the right to be honest with the president because you have to learn the volume of decision fatigue they're dealing with, how you can provide constructive um, feedback. But what I observed when looking at presidents over the past uh, decade, I started working with college presidents when I was 22, I'm 43. So, all right, let's, let's, yeah, or relatively 20 years of more than 50 presidents. 
if you watch the cabinet interactions, when you, when a decision's on the table, I always would pay attention to who's the last person who speaks before you make the decision. And the lawyers will often, I, and by the way, I have nothing, I, some of my best friends are lawyers, but this is a behavior I observed and I, you know, tell me I'm, I'm right, wrong, but the lawyer would hold, they hold their powder until the end. They hear everyone else's perspective and then they offer theirs and it is typically risk averse one. And Nine times out of 10, that is what determines the decision because it's who speaks last. It's the uh, risk averse nature of fear um, that is easily triggered by this role where you're constantly like everyone thinks that you work for them and thinks that they can fire you. And so you do end up creating this kind of anxiety nervous system for presidents. And I think that being an excellent chief of staff is a, it's an art. I would just say, for me, it was very obvious that that's who I would hold responsible for. You want someone who is prepping before you go into a congressional testimony, zooming up, changing the altitude and thinking from a systems perspective, what is the context here? What matters? What is the outcome? And setting, a, like level setting their headspace before they go in. And the headspace that I saw was fearful and like anxious about a footfall. And I just think that's that can be devastating as we've seen. So I would just say, if you get the chance to support president, well, first off, just understand how incredibly complicated the job is, but that we need people who are contributing to the peripheral vision and helping them have a nuanced perspective about their work and helping help us get to the place where they're conversational. Help me help you. Please help me get to a place where college presidents feel comfortable talking like normal people, just human beings. And uh, I think the American public, yes, that was a that was a hard day for for higher ed. I think what is needed to respond is human beings talking like human beings, owning what we've done wrong and actually putting forward a vision that makes people believe, yeah, actually they get the lesson. And in fact, they have a plan for, for making change. And I trust these people because they actually seem like a, like not a cyborg. I think that's what's going to be needed. And it's not going to be one president. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a group. So yeah. that's where, that's what I'm thinking. So thank you yep. for. All right. Well, that's a good mission for 2024. It is right. Correct. Like trying to create that. Less presidential turnovers, talk like a human being, listen to the public and actually like, don't take it defensively. Milestones, celebrate the milestones and figure out, uh, reflect on on what you learned and try and chart the path forward for us but, all to be a part of it. And, but also acknowledge imperfection, acknowledge what were the ways you can be better. I mean, that's the part that's, I think is most, almost most missing because easy for lots of presidents celebrate their milestones and say what, you know, but I think they're it, saying where we can be better is I think that's what the public wants to hear because they want that vision. Well, thank you so much. And this has been a great episode. And I look forward to seeing you all in the new year. We've got some great episodes coming up. And so, Doug, as always, thanks for being a great co-host. And I will see you soon. Happy New Year to everybody. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.